Tonight we're going to be picking it up in chapter 21 of 2 Samuel. And as we go forward in 2 Samuel chapter 21, David has been through all the drama and all the craziness of Absalom, his son, trying to overthrow him. He's fled Jerusalem. He's come back to Jerusalem. There's been another rebellion. All this stuff has gone on. And last week we left off with just this reality that when it was all said and done, <laughs> David's back in Jerusalem. He's the king. The administrators are all there doing what they're doing. And this incredible storm of life had come and gone in David's life at that time. And he's reestablished as the king. And so now we're really at the back end of David's reign as a king. And that's our context. So we pick it up in chapter 21, verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. Now, this takes us back to a story. Well, this takes us back, not just to a story, but facts. The Gibeonites were Canaanites, Amorites, that lived in the land of Israel. They're the ones that deceived uh, David excuse me, deceived Joshua over the stale bread and all that. And Joshua made a covenant with them, thinking they're from a far-off land. He didn't put it before the Lord. And he made this covenant with them to honor them and make a peace treaty with them. And then within a day or so, he found out that they were actually Canaanites and that they had deceived him. So this is hundreds of years before chapter 21 of 2 Samuel here. And in that background... When that happened, all the other Canaanite kings were furious at the Gibeonites for making a deal with Israel as Israel was coming into the land to conquer the land as they were promised to inherit the land in their covenant with God. Therefore, Joshua immediately had to have a battle against these unified kings in defense of Gibeon because he had made the covenant with the Gibeonites. So after the book of Joshua ends... There's parts of Israel where the Canaanites are not driven out. We remember that. It's not so long ago. We studied that during the first round of COVID and all that was happening for us. And the Gibeonites stayed. They, Israel was in a covenant with the Gibeonites and they stayed in the land. They were more lower tier workers, but they had a right to exist, promised by God, because God wants our yes to be yes and our no to be no. And it's not yes, no with the Lord. And so Israel was held accountable to honor that covenant with the Gibeonites, which is really important in context because they were under a condemnation from the Lord as Canaanites are to be destroyed, which tells us a lot about how important our word is that we do what we say we're going to do and we keep our word. And that our yes is yes. And when the Bible says anything more than this is, is not necessary. Because... Israel, Joshua, keeping their promise to the Gibeonites was, it superseded, it trumped, it's a higher card in the deck of cards over the condemnation and the destruction of the Gibeonites. That it's more important that the people of covenant keep their word than these people that were potentially a snare to Israel being in the land be wiped out. So that's our background to this story. And evidently, Saul, the way Saul was, we've seen this so often with Saul. Saul talked about the Lord a lot, King Saul. He would talk about the Lord, this and that and everything else. But when King Saul did this, it was always like the Lord on his terms, how he fit the Lord into his worldview and how he felt like the Lord would work. 
And so somewhere in Saul's mind and thinking, the first king of Israel, Saul, he determined that the Gibeonites, somehow he, he created theology in his own mind, which we watch people do, especially in government with power. He created a theology in his own mind that, because he's religious. We have to, you know, there's a lot of people like Saul that are in government. He has religion. Saul knew things about God. And he would leverage it to do what he wanted to do. And evidently in wanting to strengthen his kingdom, strengthen his power, maybe strengthen his financial base. I mean, because if you, you just take from people, right? And that's what governments do. So if he just wipes out the giving, I see he can take what's theirs and just say it's ours. But he'd have to go back to, well, Joshua made a covenant with them. And, uh, the, you know, and God held Joshua accountable for that. He's the first leader, not really a king. I am a king. So I can do more than Joshua. That's how kings think. We know that. And, uh, and queens. And so evidently in his mind, he came to this conclusion. Listen, Saul had to come to a theological conclusion. And a generation later, blood is going to be shed and held accountable. So this is why this is important. He came to a conclusion in his great seat of power, in his twisted mind, with his twisted religious theology, that he was justified in wiping out the Gibeonites. What applied for Joshua and back then in that other generation doesn't apply for him and his administration and his reign. Because he saw. He's better than Joshua. He's a king. Joshua is just a commander of the army. Just a leader. He's more than that. He's the first king of Israel. And you know, these Gibeonites, they were condemned by God. In the book of Mo- books of Moses, they're condemned by God. Yeah, they're condemned by God. Yes. And their land, he's like, <laughs> later on with uh, Naboth's vineyard. And Ahab, he takes the vineyard. And Jezebel goes, you're the king. Who can tell you they're not going to sell you their property? Go get that property. Raise up some worthless men to lie against them. Have them executed and take the vineyard. That's what happens in a later generation. Oh, power is so deceiving in the temporal, isn't it? Yeah. Can I get a head nod like Bruce just gave me? Power is so deceiving in the temporal. It can be so intoxicating and so deceiving. Political power, economic power, so deceiving. So Saul tried to wipe out the Gibeonites, surely to take what was theirs, just like Ahab and Jezebel did in a later generation at a different time after them. But even as Ahab and Jezebel didn't get away with it, and the dogs licked Jezebel's blood, Saul didn't get away with it either, did he? And even though Saul committed suicide, the coward that he is, to He just is such, you know, I don't even like going back to Saul, but it's here. It's a whole chapter dedicated to Saul, essentially. We have to, we're like, Joey, I thought in the family, family dinners were past Saul. No, no, we're not. We're, we're, we still got Saul. We're halfway through our meal. We're like, going, we got to go back and talk about Uncle Saul again and all that. Yes, we do, because this is God's word. And we're going through it. And he just thought. In his twisted mind, he justified it, no doubt. Because we know Saul justified everything he ever did, right? For sure. Saul justified everything he ever did in a religious manner. And now a generation later, he's gone. He's gone from planet Earth. He's, he caught his plane. He's in eternity. He's long gone. He's, he's the dead lion, as Solomon would say. 
but his descendants are living dogs, as Solomon would say. And now what the dead lion did is going to affect the living dogs. That's the background to the story. Because even more so with God's economy and God's covenant, that our yes is yes and our no is no. And when he makes a promise, it's never yes and no. And we're his people of promise. So we're, we, we have that assurance and we, our words should have that credibility, which was the whole thing with Joshua and the Gibeonites centuries before. Even more so is the reality of blood guilt. That's even the bigger reality in the story is the blood guilt. So Saul made himself put himself in the place of God as judge and jury of the Gibeonites, and he tried to wipe them out. We don't, the only thing we know about this is this chapter. But this is the background, and this is the way God's justice in the universe works. On a day like today, August 9th, 2022, you may not see justice, and we don't see justice for a lot of things happening on planet Earth right now. But as the wheels of justice in God's universe move forward slowly, consistently, they execute perfect justice on everything that ever happens in the affairs of humanity in a universe with trillions of galaxies. And every lie, every religious deception, and most of all, every blood guilt in the human experience will be held accountable with perfect justice for all eternity and even the innocent blood being shed this day on planet Earth. And of that, we can be absolutely sure. So that's our context tonight. The bloodthirsty house of Saul had killed the Gibeonites, contrary to God's will. And now he's gone, but someone's going to pay, and it's his descendants. Verse 2, so the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them, King David. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord, which would be Israel? In other words, how can we make this right? You guys make the call, we'll make it right and we'll honor it. And the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. That is a golden verse. We'll come back to that. So David said, whatever you say, I'll do it for you. And then they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in the territories of the Israel, of the Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. In other words, we'll hang seven of his descendants for perfect justice, seven being the number of completion, too, in the Bible. We'll hang them in the very town that's Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chooses. And the king said, I will give them. Verse 7, But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, that's a different Mephibosheth, and the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Bazarili, the Maholalathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together. They are put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. 
So we've had three years of famine, and now we have this blood guilt, and we have the execution of seven of Saul's descendants hanging, being hung. Verse 10. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told that Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done what she had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bethshan. We remember this from the beginning of the book. Where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gilboa. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there. And they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan in the country of Benjamin in Zala. And of course, Saul was a Benjamite, so in their own territory. In the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. What a unique and amazing story, huh? Does this get your attention? Like, there's a covenant that wasn't held. There's a self-willed king from the previous generation, all that he did. There's blood guilt. There's a blood guilt that's so affecting. Listen, blood guilt works this way, too. Blood guilt affects you economically. That's how blood guilt works. So if anybody in the human experience, any person, any household, any ethnic people group, any society, any government thinks they can just shed innocent blood for a prolonged period of time and get away with it, they are absolutely insane. That's why human history is the rise and fall of so many different people groups. You know, there's a time when the Mongols were the most powerful people in the world. There are nobody now, nothing personal if you're Mongolian. And I mean that sincerely. Genghis Khan and his descendants for about 100 years, they ruled the world. And they were bloodthirsty people. And, you know, you don't have to go far back to when we said the, the Nimitz, as the Russians called the Germans, when the Germans, the Prussians, ruled the world. They don't rule anything. They're begging for more gas from the Russians today. And they backed off all the sanctions they were so loud and proud of four months ago because they're shooting themselves in the foot like the rest of the EU. All oh, the rise of the Third Reich. So powerful, they almost took over the world in 39, 40, 41. And how powerful was Japan 80 years ago? They almost beat America. They almost did it. They, you know, when you study World War II history, they were closer than we think. They, they had a plan, and it was a good plan. They just didn't quite have the depth to pull it off. And now they have no military, and they watch what goes on with China, and they're asking the U.S. and South Korea to be their buddies, and North Korea is pointing missiles at them, nuclear missiles. It's an ebb and flow. And what happens in human history, and I will say I'm a recreational expert on human history, is governments rise up, and they ultimately become corrupt, which is what people do with power, the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, and eventually they shed innocent blood. And eventually they're brought down for their shedding of innocent blood. Eventually God executes judgment upon them in time, space, and matter, and he raises up another. And this is human history across the board. Think about China. China was nowhere 140 years ago. China was occupied by all the Western imperial powers. England, Germans, America. All The, the Euros raped the China people, essentially. And then the Japanese came and got on it, too. And now who kind of rules the world? <laughs> well, China makes everything. 
And they have a very powerful army. Maybe we don't know how powerful it is. We might just find out. See, there's a justice in that. Stay with me. This is all connected. There's a justice in that. Because if you understand the Chinese people, they were so occupied by imperial powers 150 years ago. And yes, the CCP, and they are shedding innocent blood right now, and they're doing all kinds of things that they do as the Communist Party. They took Hong Kong, essentially. They're doing what they do. They're, they're moving in on Taiwan. But it's their time to shine. They were oppressed, and their blood was shed, their innocent blood. And now they're a superpower. This is how it works. See, it says, after that, God healed the, heard the prayer for the land. Mark my words in Jesus' name as a pastor of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a prophet of the word. God always holds the people collectively accountable for innocent blood being shed in their land. And he holds them accountable economically. And he'll bring them down and he'll raise up another. And human history proves it without a doubt. And I believe what we're watching right now on our planet, the seismic shifts of superpowers, of fading glory and emerging glories, and real wealth and fake wealth and all these other things, is we're watching right now in our day and age a seismic shift of power. And you say, well, Joey, all the countries are evil. Why should China rule over America? Why should Russia rule over America? But I would say, why should America rule over anybody? For all the innocent blood we've shed with the unborn in American history, over 70 million babies, why would God ever prosper our dollar, our currency, and our economy? And that didn't even count what we did to African Americans during slavery. Now, I don't blame myself for what happened during slavery, and you shouldn't blame yourself either. I wasn't alive. Don't try and put something on me because I'm a white male in my 60s. I didn't do that. That's ridiculous. Still, though, somebody else did. I don't need to apologize for what other people did before I was born. I got enough to apologize for what I did today. Just like you. But just know this, no one gets away with blood guilt. After that, God heeded the prayer for the land. What a powerful verse. So wait a second, Joy, what are we saying here? Yeah, we're saying seven men hung from the house of Saul is divine justice upon the house of Saul to bring healing to the entire nation and the restoration of their economy. So in time, space, and matter, with the hanging of Saul's seven sons, descendants, not sons, descendants, we're told it's because of innocent blood. The Gibeonites are like, you know what, we don't want, don't you want to be like the Gibeonites in this chapter, by the way? Isn't it nice when you've been so wrong that people try to destroy your family? What if someone tried to destroy you, your wife, your kids, your grandkids? Could we be so gracious, your descendants? They're not even people of covenant. And they go, you know what? We don't want, this is people that really, uh, there's something to be admired about the Gibeonites in this chapter. We do not want the gold from the house of Saul. Think about that right there. I have lots of things I think I could do with gold. So if anyone wants to give gold, we'll figure out how to, you know, it's, it's biblical wealth. So gold's always been wealth from the dawn of creation, Genesis 2, to this day. You know why? It's the metal of heaven. There's something about gold between humanity and God. It's the metal of heaven, the throne room in glory. It's the same with the rainbow, too, by the way. It's something of eternity. They said we don't... In other words, gold has always backed economies and currencies throughout human history. 
That's why the Chinese and Russians have all, all been accumulating gold lately. I don't understand. Like, you can't eat gold. You can't make a lot of things with gold. But there's something about gold that goes back to, in my mind, Genesis 2, the gold is good. It's, a, it's, the, it's the value. It's an equity value of eternity that's in time. So we look at gold, and it reminds us we're going to eternity. That's the best I can come up with it. So governments want to have, like, tons of gold. Like Franklin Roosevelt took all the gold coins that he could find, made it illegal to have gold coins in America, and then he melted all down, made the gold bars, and put them in Fort Knox to make our currency what it is and give our dollar the value that it has. But we went off of that a long time ago. And the Gibeonites said, we don't want the gold and we don't want the silver. That's admirable. And even though they're not eternal people or have a covenant, like, think what God had to do in their hearts. We're like, you know, you're so free when you're not worried about temporal wealth. Because everyone has like a price tag, right? Like all the corrupt people that we watch right now playing chess with the world and the powers of the world, they like gold. They like silver. They like that stuff. They like shedding innocent blood to get more gold and more silver. The Gibeonites, we don't want it. And they even said, we don't even want, vindic- we don't even want revenge. What good is revenge? Like the people that he killed from our family and our, our community, what's it going to do? Now, you take the end of World War II, hey, every German worth his salt tried to get to the Western Front so they could surrender to Americans, not Russians. Because let me tell you, when the Russians came through Eastern Europe, pressing the Nimitz, the Germans back, oh man, they were ruthless. And they wanted payback because millions of Russians died during World War II in the Great War, as it's called in Russia. I've been to Russia. Every city has a massive monument for the men that died in World War II defending Mother Russia. Every city, town, square, whatever. The Germans were so afraid because of payback. Because they went through raping and pillaging and doing everything they did all the way to the Ukraine, all the way to Kiev. You know, they killed 35,000 Jews in one day in Kiev. The Germans, the Nazis did the SS and all the criminals that they released from prisons in Eastern Europe. And they did all this stuff. And then as they went back, little by little, they did scorch earth all the way home. The Russians came and they made them pay to the end. The Gibeonites didn't do that. Meekness is the ability to, well, of course, forgiveness is the greatest equity you can have in the human experience. Our ability to forgive people that have wronged us is, without a doubt, the greatest equity that we can have. Because a person who dies without malice and bitterness is a, is a free woman and a free man before the throne of God. And they're fruitful till the last day. There's no bitterness. There's no wrath. It's a, it's a great, I mean, humility is a great equity. But purity is a great equity. But forgiveness is probably the greatest equity. Because it's the one that Jesus says, if you don't forgive others, I'm not going to forgive you. So it's obviously the highest, you know, like if you have a portfolio of what, a spiritual portfolio of what's, you know, what's your equity of spirituality, the, 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 the undergirding investment that you have has to be forgiveness. And the Gibeonites here are just amazing. I think they're just amazing because they have no, they're like, we don't want their gold or silver. They don't have the covetousness. There's no, there's no payment price to make this right. Like, you can't bring them back. The people that Saul killed of their descendants or uncles or cousins, there's no amount of money that can bring them back. So why even play this game of gold and silver? It doesn't mean anything to us. And as far as executing innocent people, then that makes us no better than him. Like, what good is that going to do? There's, there's great admirability. It's very admirable how the Gibeonites carry themselves in this chapter. But hanging seven descendants specifically to stop the famine, 
to make right the wrong, to bring justice on the, in the world for the people of covenant, that was a solution. David signed off on it. And above all else, God affirmed it because it says, and after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. So it just gives me one thought before we move forward. That Jesus, of course, is the one who's paid the price for us. Jesus is the one who hanged on a cross for us to heal our land, our soul, our life, all of our shortcomings. And no silver or gold can buy our redemption. The redemption of our souls, as the Bible says, is what? Oh, it's very costly. And what does the Bible say about our redemption? Could we be redeemed with gold and silver? The New Testament says no. But we're redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. So there surely is blood guilt in all of our lives to some degree or another by what we've, as Romans 1 says, what we've done or what we've signed off and thought was a good thing to do when it was evil or turned a blind eye to evil because God holds us accountable that way. And aren't we blessed before we move on from these verses to know that through faith in Jesus Christ that he paid the price, that the blood guilt upon our lives, the stain that could affect future generations of our family from our failures in life, that Jesus Christ on the cross pays that price for you and me and our loved ones and the next generation to come. That you don't have to look at your adult kids and think like, oh, this is the consequence of my sin. But you can say, no, God is good and he sent his son down the cross and I'm forgiven and they can be forgiven. And you have to look at your grandkids and say, oh my, what evil is going to come upon them for all the evil I did? No, because Christ is a curse for all of us. And curse is he who hangs on the tree, the law says in the Old Testament. And Christ took that curse, and so he breaks that curse. So when people say like, well, what about generational curses? Jesus Christ breaks every curse. All of them. And aren't we rejoicing in that tonight as the church of Jesus Christ? And he breaks the curse of governments that shed innocent blood. He breaks the curse of ethnic groups that go after each other century after century after century. Because it's all about the individual with the Lord. As many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. So once we choose to receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, we pass from the blood guilt as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve for all of our shortcomings and sins and the accountability of it, and we're saved by grace. And he took that curse. He's like the seven sons of seven descendants of Saul. Jesus took the curse, except he wasn't guilty. But in a lot of ways, they weren't either, were they? They didn't do what Saul did, but who knows? Maybe they signed off on it. Yeah, Dad, get it. You know, kind of like when you have like those parents that are over the top, and they and they're like the, they bully everyone when their kids are playing sports. They bully the umpires. They bully the other dads and moms and everybody else. And then what happens is their kids become bullies in the dugout. So maybe that is the case, but maybe not. Who can know? But do, this we do know. After that, God heeded the prayer for the land. That's what we do know. So in this story, justice played out. God honored it. And let's go forward. And that's exactly what we can say every morning when we wake up with our faith in Jesus Christ. And I, to that, I say yes and amen. Amen? That's a good feeling to, from this verse right here, this passage, to go there. Now we read on. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines. You know, they never go away. There's always always going to be a war. And David drew faint. David grew faint. Then Ishbanab, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying... You shall no more go with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. And not happen afterward. There was again a battle with the Philistines in Gob. And then 
Shebechiah the Hushite killed Soph, who was one of the sons of the giant. And again, there was a war at God with the Philistines where Elananan, the son of Jare Oregon, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite. So he killed Goliath's brother. The shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was a war at Gath where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was born to the giant. And so when he defiled Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. So this is a direct, this is a nephew, took him out. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servant. It seems like the people of faith have to always fight giants, huh? <laughs> you know, I wish I could just like, hey, you know, but it's always like some giant, you know, when you're having a bad day and you look out the window, it's not a little thing, little thing like, oh, hey, little, little scary little demon. It's like a massive giant. You know, like, it's like we're all, it seems like we're always fighting giants. Well, in the next chapter we're going to read in a moment, David tells like how those battles get won. Isn't it interesting that Abishai saves David's life? You know, Abishai's just waiting to take somebody out. Like, he's like, <laughs> oh, he was, he was ready for it, right? Like, there's Shimei. Like, ah, you know, they're leaving Israel. He's like, God, David, let me kill this guy. This Shimei has got to go from the house of Saul. And David was like, stop it. And then they come back. He's like, there's Shimei. I'll take him out. He, he cursed the Lord's anointed. David's like, dude, just stop it. But here's Abishai. And it's, see, we don't, we don't kill our own, even if they're Shimei from the tribe of Benjamin. You need to know who the enemy is. And when you fight the good fight, you're not fighting the people that are on your side. We're fighting, as the New Testament says, principalities and powers. We're, ours is a spiritual battle, and our weapons are spiritual. And we're not really fighting people. We're fighting, the church is fighting spiritual entities that are oppressing the church and oppressing humanity that Christ came to set free and that Christ is going to hold accountable on the day of the Lord. So Abishai finally is fighting the, the right foe. And he, you know, in the real human experience, it's hard not to think, what did David think when Abishai saved his life? It's like, well, you know, <laughs> you know, those MMA guys, they're tough. You know, and you like most of the time they'll drive you nuts. But if you're in a street brawl, it never hurts to have a guy in your camp that's an MMA guy. You know, like it never hurts to have that guy on your side. And or as Pastor Chuck once told me, you need the Lord and really good lawyers. That's what he told me. Because I was involved in a lawsuit. Uh, representing Calvary Costa Mesa, and I went to these depositions, and I was amazed at how good the lawyer was. As a woman, she's like 6'2", and she meant business, and she was taking no prisoners in these depositions. And she was from the law firm that Calvary Costa Mesa had representing them from this car accident with one of our bands like 20 years ago. And Pastor Chuck was like, well, Joey and all, you know, uh, Jesus and good lawyers <laughs> and all. I was like, wow, like that's, I never thought I'd hear that from Pastor Chuck, but I was like, I'm, I'm going to grab that right there. You know, it's like, yeah. never hurts to have Abishai around. And they're, they're a mystery. Every church has, well, I don't know, I can't think of anyone in WGS and Abishai, so and I'm not saying anyone isn't Abishai, but I don't know. Sometimes you have these people, especially in big churches, and they just, they, they're a certain way, and there comes a defining moment where they do the right thing that really saves everybody. You follow me? Like, they're, they'll take risks that no one else take, and they're just wired a certain way, and you think, like, that, that girl's over the top. That guy's over the top. But then when something gnarly goes on, Abishai saves the day. Abishai saved David's life. Just throw that in everything else that we've got in 2 Samuel. After all that, after all of that with Abishai and Joe, I was like, Abishai, randomly, like, and by the way, because I'm excited to get to chapter 22, but randomly, by the way, Abishai saved David's life. 
in combat. He rescued him. So I would imagine David's and Abishai's relationship was a little different after that day, huh? And plus, they're all like, David, you cannot go back in the ring again. You cannot go to war. You cannot. You, those days are gone. You can't surf pipeline anymore. You can't run triathlons anymore. It's over. It's over. It's done. You just can't do that. And you older people are chuckling because you know there's a day where you're just like, you know what? I just I can't do that. I'm about a 1.5-mile walk on the bike path going 2.8 miles an hour. And that's what I like to do. You follow me? I'm about like a bigger board, a softer wave, and head high. Okay? That, that's how life works. And David, you know, we feel like we're young at heart all the time, but praise the Lord for Abishai that he saved David's life. Now, chapter 22 is a song of David, and we're going to go through it like a psalm. So uh, the second part, this latter part of this evening, we get this. It's, just, it's pretty much the same content as Psalm 18, a very famous psalm of David's in the book of Psalms. And in verse 1 of chapter 22, it says, Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And then it says, and he said. So when you study the background to this song in 22 of 2 Samuel, you'll get different opinions like, well, is it really like at the, at the end of David's life? Because we see the content, like how could he write this after he sinned with Bathsheba and all that happened with Uriah? Well, still, it could be that case. And not only that, even as Danny played songs from a different timeline tonight, they take us back to God's faithfulness in the past, right? So in other words, who's not to say David couldn't have sang this song when he was young and experienced that victory in his early 30s when he was coming to the throne and all was good with the Lord, but that What's not to say he couldn't sing this song when he's 65 in the last five years of his life when he's going to go be at the Lord. And like, for example, the song I could sing of your love forever. Someone just played Open the Eyes of My Heart. Was that? That was here the other night. Someone played that song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. See you high and lifted up. That's, oh, that's a favorite from 99, isn't it? In my mind, I know it's right before Y2K. Maybe it's not the same for you, but I remember Y2K and I remember that song came out before Y2K, that we were singing that in 99 when I was trying to figure out what's next in ministry. Open eyes my heart, Lord. And then, and then I could sing of your love forever. Oh, God of Wonders is like 20, 2001. Right, it's after 9-11, God of Wonders. is right after 9-11 doing youth camps. And we're singing God of Wonders, Beyond Our Galaxy. And I, in my mind, it's right after 9-11 when everyone was, all the kids like, what's going to happen to our world? We got a war. We got all this going on. So anytime you sing God of Wonders like we did during COVID, and I was crying when we were remote, Remember I did on the DJ board? I played God of Wonders. I just started sobbing. Like, oh, I did not plan on doing that on live stream. But the song, God, like, that's what God of Wonders does. You know, so we're going through COVID. No one's in the sanctuary. I'm teaching by myself. Sam's back there, and I'm playing God of Wonders on the DJ board. I'm like, what in the world's going on with our universe? It takes me back to post 9-11. So my point is, the song of David in, in, here in chapter 22 with Psalm 18, they're almost identical songs. Not quite, completely, but pretty similar. And who's not to say, like, we're not singing God of Wonders in 2002, and we're singing it in 2042 when we're 81, and you came to the assisted living place, and you decided to play it on the keyboards, and I remember it. Because when I've talked about dementia and Alzheimer's in the past, I remember a woman coming up to me saying, I do worship for elderly people in assisted living, and I can tell you it's exactly what you said. They, they might not remember all these other things, but when we play certain hymns, they know every single word, and they sing the entire song. 
So I say this because this is the end of David's life. The text tells us that, that he spoke the words of the song when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies. Well, he had enemies till the very end. So if we just take that at face value, then I think it's possible that this is a song, like those songs, we all know songs we grew up with, and they bring back memories, whether worship songs or secular songs, and they remind us of things, and of course the worship songs are the best. So I say, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song. He sings this song, and whether he's singing it young or old, he's singing it, and it would have served him his whole life. So we pick it up, and we're going to get a couple little things in as we go through this. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. When the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of the grave shoals surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry entered his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devoured fire, devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with the darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from the strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. This is exactly what Jesus did for everyone who's saved by the blood. That's who he is. David says, the Lord is my savior. I call upon the Lord. He's delivered me. He protects me from my enemies. He establishes me. He, he fights my battles. They were too strong for me. But he delivered me because he delights in me. And isn't that beautiful that the Lord delights in his people? It's important to realize because the devil wants to beat us up and have us think the Lord's always against us. But Jesus didn't die on the cross to be against us. And as it says in Ezekiel, God said, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I take pleasure that they would repent and be saved. The Lord is for us, and the Lord is our support, and he delivers us because he delights in us. Not because we're good, but because he's good, and he loves his children. Verse 7 is a strong verse worth noting. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. This is church history right here. Because we do have distress. We have distress from our own crises in our personal life. We have distress from crises in our families. We have distress from crises in our communities, in our country, in the human experience. We call upon him in our distress. And if it's our time, it's our time. And by the way, if it's your time, what's, what's better than to call upon the Lord in the day of your distress? Yeah, yeah. You're just transcending dimensions anyways. Like Jesus is in the room now and I'm going to his glory. Like, he's here now, and I'm going there. You, we, want to make, we want to invite Jesus to be with us in every experience, and we want him in the day of distress. 
And maybe he'll deliver us from the day of distress. I've been delivered from the day of distress. That time I was out of 50 foot Waimea Bay, and I thought for sure I was a goner by myself, open ocean. I was sobbing. I was terrified. The swell was building to 60 feet. I was trying to calibrate how am I going to get back to the beach. It's 10 in the morning. I have eight, about eight hours to do it. Thousands of people at Waimea Bay all watching me. I'm the only guy left in the lineup. I didn't even know it. My friend had almost died. Previously, they were rescuing him on the beach, got Farnsworth. And I'll tell you what I did. I just started crying, and I did what any good Catholic would do. I repented of everything I could think I ever did wrong in my life. I truly, truly was confessing every sin I could think of in my life, which has nothing to do with being Catholic. It just has to be with a human being thinking you're going to step into eternity. I literally was confessing, and I did this, and I did that. I'm on a surfboard in the backs of the waves at Waimea Bay, like 50 feet. It was massive. It was closing out Waimea Bay. And I'm just... It was my day of distress. I've had other days of distress. When I held my dead son in my arms, that's a day of distress. You've had days of distress. Remember when you thought you were going to die and the Lord delivered you? Or maybe you had a test come back and the doctors thought it was cancer, but they had to do more tests and you found out that it wasn't cancer when you did further tests. I had that experience. I had a three-day weekend where I thought I had cancer when I was 31 in Virginia Beach and then did more tests. It turned out I didn't have cancer. But it sure scared me and made my life different with, my, with Hannah and Leah when they're like four and two. I don't even think Timmy was born yet. I'll tell you what, that'll give you a different weekend. That's a different 72 hours, right? That weekend was like, oh, fat, fasting for 30 hours to get everything out of you so they can do the test. That's nothing compared to what if they're right and I really do have cancer, that fear of cancer. But isn't God bigger than the thing we fear the most anyways? Of course he is. We call upon the Lord in the day of distress. I've been, you guys that are older, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen the day of distress. Someone's trying to destroy you. Just, there's nothing you can, it's a, it's just, what can you do? It's a, what can you do but cry upon the Lord? And just because you cry upon the Lord doesn't mean it's not just it's still a distressful situation either, does it? David understood the day of distress, and the longer we live, the more we will too. Amen. So what can you do? You can't make the day of stress go away. That's why you should dance at the wedding, because you might as well dance when you can dance, because you're going to cry whether you choose to or not. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Thank you, David, because that's all that matters. Because it's not if we'll have distress, it's when and what will we do when we have it. Verse 21, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands, he has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all of his judgments were before me, as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore the Lord recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. With the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. So here David contrasts that the Lord recompensed him according to his righteousness. Of course, David committed adultery. David signed off on Uriah's murder in combat and got him accountable for it. But in the end, David would still know that he would be justified through faith because he... He said, I'm going to build you a house, God. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. See, he tried to do save by works when I'm going to build a house for God. And God says, I'm going to show you save by grace. I'm going to build you a house. 
And that's what David eventually learned in the journey of his life. But what a warning for the people who want to rule the world. With a devious, you will show yourself shrewd. Man, there's be some people getting a shocker when they step into eternity. Verse 29. For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my path. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. Think of all that David did in combat. And just, man, the Lord was with him in everything. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He's a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and my power, and he makes my way perfect or complete. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, and he sets me on my high places. He teaches my hand to make war so that my arm can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. And I have destroyed them and wounded them so they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet for you've armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. You have given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. And then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets, and I spread them out. David was a man of war and a man of combat. He lived intense combat experiences like our friends who are veterans that have seen war and seen combat in war. Engagement, contact, that type of a thing. And he, he knew war, and he, he knew the brutality of the battlefield for sure. And so he's just talking about how God brought him through it all. And those enemies of David, they were the enemies of the Lord as well. So he, see, we always want a just war in America, and every country wants a just war. Like, again, if you study history, you'll see that the NVA and, and Northern, Northern Vietnam, they, you know, Ho Chi Minh, they're, they, in their minds are completely justified. And you can see their argument when they drove out the French, then they drove out the Americans. Like, those are colonists. They drove them out. They'll, they'll, they think that way, and they have a reason to think that way. America always wants to be the justified in a war. God knows who's just and who's not just. Plus, combat wars are for people like Caesar to figure out. But our battles are the real battles. Someone commented on my dad's dog tags on my, around my neck recently. And uh, I said, I didn't serve. These are my, these are my, not my dad's, my grandfather's from World War II. These are my dad, my grandfather's from World War II, South Pacific, 4th Marine Division, ARC, American Red Cross. These are his dog tags. And sometimes I just wear them. Just to remind myself that somebody did great things in my family before I came along to give me a better future. And I respect that as we, you know, we respect the military. But I'm glad I didn't have to see what he saw. He was in Guadalcanal and he was at Iwo Jima. I'm really glad I didn't have to see what he saw. But, you know, I feel kind of silly, like, wow, here I am like this, you know, spoiled baby boomer that came too late for Vietnam and too early for all these other things. But you know what? I have fought the devil for 34 years. I fought the devil all over this planet for 34 years. I prayed for people all over this planet for 34 years. And if I want to wear my grandfather's dog tags, I'm going to wear them. Because my grandfather would approve of it, I'm sure. Because the battles I fought and you and I fight for Jesus Christ in this dark world, the battles we're fighting against people like Planned Parenthood and these evil deceivers in the highest places, those are way bigger battles. Those, the spiritual battles we fight, the moment you get serious with Jesus and you enter into combat against the devil and his minions and principalities and powers, that's the real battle. All the wars are just a, an overflow in time, space, and matter visibly, what's really already going on spiritually in the spiritual realm. We're told that. And we're moving towards something that is way more than this planet's ever seen in any previous global conflicts. We're moving toward it right now. 
Like seriously, I know you're all serious about Jesus, but if by chance you're not, you want to be serious about Jesus right now. Because we're moving toward things right now on this planet that anyone that's discerning and really watching what's going on, we are moving toward very, very serious things right now. Like no generation has ever seen what we're moving toward right now on this planet. So we fight the good fight. We fight the right enemies. And our weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for turning down strongholds. So we don't beat anybody into fine dust. We can pray against them. They can mock us at city council meetings. They can do all the stuff they want to do. They can try and shout us down with their megaphones in front of our houses. But in the end, our weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for turning down strongholds. Our weapon is prayer and the word of God. And it always has been and always will be because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we can't grow weary in doing good. And in the end, God's way is perfect. His word is proven. He has sealed those who trust in him. And that's, he's judge of the universe. We're his bride. And he loves us more than anything else in the entire universe. So he's going to take care of us. He's got our back. Verse 44. You have delivered me from the strivings of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. The foreigners shall submit to me as soon as they hear they obey me. That sounds a lot like what Jesus reigns. Because that's what the nations are going to do. Verse 46, the foreigners fade away and they come frightened from their hideouts. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted. The rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and it subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies and you also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. He is a tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed to David and his descendants forevermore. I love how this ends with this last phrase that he shows us mercy, and we already saw it with merciful, show himself merciful, but to David and his descendants forevermore. So yet again, what a contrast. We began tonight with Saul's descendants, seven of them being hung for justice for the sins and the evil and the innocent bloodshedding that he did in his lifetime. And we end tonight with David having been through all the testings, trials, tribulations, and tragedy of his life. And he sings his triumphant song. And the end, he says, he shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. And David's descendants have been blessed. They were blessed. Solomon was blessed. Many of those kings, Josiah, Hezekiah, they're his descendants. They were blessed. They did great things in their timeline. And it just reminds me, it reminds us that it's always going to be honorable with the Lord to do the right thing for the Lord. And it's going to always bring blessings upon our marriages or our singleness. It's it's going to bring blessings on our children and our children's children. It's going to always, we wake up and we're blessed with the Lord. The blessings chase the righteous, it says in Proverbs. Think about that. The blessings chase the righteous. That's what it says in Proverbs. And his blessings chase us, and they chase our descendants. So in a week where I've had my grandkids in Florida hanging out, and I've had all the grandkids here, when I don't feel good, and I'm still recovering from COVID and the fatigue and the cough and just the UTI and all this stuff, I look at these grandkids, and think, like, what great things the Lord has for them. And I think, I just want to make the right decisions privately and publicly from here to eternity to bring blessings upon these kids, these future descendants, who will live out their lives with Jesus when I'm long gone. Yes and amen, right? Yes and amen. And the things that we can control, we bring the blessings upon that. If we can't control it, we're still a blessing. All we can do is love, forgive, seek, serve, and bless in Jesus' name. And all these other things, 
They're going to play out the way they play out. Keep ourselves under the blood, under the spout where the glory comes out, and just going forward, all eyes on King Jesus.